get things rolling here this morning. So let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we just uh, ask your blessing upon it. Father, we thank you. It's so beautiful outside, and we just thank you for that and, and the much-needed rain that we've had this past week. And, and Lord, uh, we just thank you for all the little blessings that you give us, and we just pray that uh, we would not take those things for granted, but uh, give you the thanks that you deserve. And, and so, Father, as we look into your word this morning, as we talk about uh, uh, these sometimes difficult topics, uh, we just pray that you would give us, uh, give us wisdom, let your spirit guide us as we go, and we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. Last week, uh, we, uh, it's actually our second week in, in, in our study of uh, recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible, uh, but last week was really the first real week of talking about the, the topic. Uh, and so I want to just recap a little, especially for those of you who may not have been here. Uh, we talked about uh, how in, in the Bible, and not just in the Bible, but in the ancient world, uh, especially the ancient like Near and Middle East, uh, gardens and mountains were often seen as places that the gods lived. And you find this in almost all cultures. Uh, and the interesting thing is we find it in the Bible too. We, and we find so many references to God's holy mountain or holy mountains. There's more than one. Uh, we find references to gardens or well-watered places. Uh, and, and we saw that in Eden, that, that God uh, planted a garden. And, and most of the time when we think of Eden, we think of it as the place that God made for Adam. But that's not necessarily the case because we see that God is there. And that is not really how the ancient Hebrews would have read it. They would have understood right away this is a place that God was, was going to be at. But as we discussed last week, even though there's a lot of similarities between uh, you know, what the Bible says and a lot of other ancient cultures around the Bible, you also find drastic differences. And that's one of the big you know, points of it, that, that God is kind of uh, using these, you know, these images to show major differences between Yahweh and all the other peoples around them. And what you found in the garden was not just God, but you found man. And in fact, the Bible tells us that God created man in his image. Uh, and as we discussed last week, being in the image of God, that word in, in Hebrew, it, you know, is more like as the image of God. We were created not just with certain attributes that you know, came from God and resemble God's attributes, but we were created essentially with a position, being created as imagers. That's what we are. It, it's, it's not really about the attributes, it's about the job title, essentially. That is what mankind was created to be. All human beings are the image of God. And, and some, like, like we said last week, some are not very good at it, at imaging God, uh, downright awful. But, you know, that is what we were created to be, is God's imagers. And this is very important even as we talk about things like abortion, because, you know, the, the argument that the, the, the pro-choice, you know, movement always uses is, well, you know, up until a certain point, you know, uh, they can't think, you know, thoughts, and they don't have consciousness, and, and all these things, you know, that we tend to associate with the image of God. And unfortunately, we fall kind of into the trap by associating the image of God with those things. But once you kind of understand that you are created not just in God's image, but as God's image, it means the moment human life begins, it's human, and it's God's image, and that's what you were created to be. It's your purpose. And so once you kind of understand that, you get a much better, you know, handle on a lot of things, not just, you know, the things that the Bible itself talks about. So we saw that, you know, that, that man was created as, as God's imager, man was created with great purpose, which again strikes a huge contrast to the ancient world. Their creation stories, man was either created by accident in some cases. In other cases, man was created on purpose, but he was always created just to be kind of slaves to the gods or kind of bodies to be used in the wars between the gods. But that's not what you find in Christianity. You have God breathing into man the breath of life, 
God get, you know, caring about man, making a mate for man, you know, giving man responsibility. Yes, man was to keep the garden, as we saw last week. But then he was, we're seeing the, the, uh, what's called the, the creation mandate, the dominion mandate, some call it. Man was to go out into all the earth and essentially make all the earth like Eden. You know, Eden was not all the earth, which is how we look at it a lot of times. Eden was, you look at it, it's a geographic location. God planted a garden in the east in Eden. You know, and it's surrounded by the rest of the world. And the rest of the world was great, but it wasn't like Eden. And man's job was to go out and subdue it, have dominion over it. It needed subduing. It needed changing. God wanted to make it like Eden. So he gave man not only like, you know, a job of keeping the garden, but he gave man incredible responsibility. He gave him essentially the ability to be God's kind of co-ruler on the earth. I can't tell you, if you've never read any of like the, the, the creation stories of, of, of ancient people around Israel, you don't have any idea how striking that difference is. I, I, it's startling almost. Uh, you know, the, 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 the wealth that God puts into humanity is incredible. You know, we live in a world where so many people struggle with what is my purpose? Why am I alive? So many people struggle with self-worth. If you could ever just get a grasp on what humanity means to God compared to what everybody else around Israel understood and how they, remember, when God gave this to Moses, they were coming out of Egypt for 400 years and going to Mesopotamia where they were going to spend, that was going to be the, the, the promised land. That's where they were going to be. God's taking them from the Egyptians to the Canaanites who had such starkly different viewpoints. And God is in, in, you know, it's telling them, I love you. And this is who you are. This is your identity. This is what you are. And this is a part of understanding the supernatural worldview of the Bible is understanding who we are in Christ, who we are as God's children. You know, we have to kind of get these things first before we kind of move on to some of these other things. So it's hugely important. Well, then we, we took a fresh look at Babel. In the light of all the things that we saw, mountains, gardens, you know, places that God's lived. Well, what's Babel? It's a man-made mountain. You know, God had given them the same creation mandate, the same dominion mandate after the, after the flood. God didn't change his mind because of the flood. The wording is almost exactly the same as what he told Adam in the garden. It, it's almost verbatim in Hebrew. Go out into the world, have dominion, subdue it. God still wanted mankind to do the same thing he had created them for. Yes, it broke that relationship between God and man, but God hadn't given up on it, and he still wanted man to be the same thing he'd always created man to be. That's who we still are. Despite the fact that sin has kind of marred that image and, and, and uh, you know, the characteristics that God did give us that are like him. Sin's marred that, but it hasn't erased it. You know, and, and God gave them the same mandate, and what do you see them do? Some, and, and actually Mike and I were talking about this after, after class, some translations had it, have it they came from the east, some have it they went to the east. Um, I think most scholars nowadays think it, it probably is to the east they went, um, but we don't know for sure. But the main point is they hit a place you know, in, in the, the plain of Shinar, which is, is where ancient Babylon was at, that's where it gets its name, Babel, and they decided this is where we're going to set up shop. They were all together, and, and they got there, and, they, and, and it was an out-and-out out rebellion against God. You know, God wants us to spread out, fill the earth, you know, have dominion over it, make it like, like Eden, and instead, we're going to do this our way. We're going to set up shop right here. We're going to create a new Eden right here. That, that, was, that was what they were doing. And then they start building their own mountain, their own place of the gods. And they start, you know, if, and we read Romans 1, 
uh, verses 18 through 25, and we have time, we'll, we'll go to that a little bit again today, but God points to a time where, you know, false worship and idolatry starts on the earth, and they start, they, they, they knew who God was, the Bible says. They knew his attributes. They had seen it ever since creation, but they, they on purpose put that aside and, 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 and refused to remember who he was and started worshiping the things that were created instead of the creator who made them. And God's indictment is, he said, okay, if that's what you want, have at it. I'll give you what you want. It was the third kind of straight rebellion that we see in, Bible, in the Bible, the three great rebellions against God. The Garden of Eden, Noah and the flood, which we're going to look at today, and then Babel. You know, and, and, and the first two, you know, God kicked him out of Eden, said, I'm not going to let you live forever, not going to let you eat of the tree, now, you know, you got to get out of here, you're going to go out into the world now, Eden's not going to be your, your kind of base of operations anymore, uh, you know, but I still want you to, to, to do what I, I, I created you to do. Then we, you know, the, the world becomes such a mess, God says, okay, I'll destroy it all, start all over, one family, just like in the beginning. Again, that, that story of Noah is almost like a second story of, of the creation. Now start it all over again. All right, they get to Babel, and they refuse to do what God wants. And so God finally says, okay, all right, this is what you want, have at it. You, you, you can have your way. We'll look more at that story today. So that's kind of what we talked about last, last week. But, uh, but at, at the end, the last thing we, we spoke about was, was, you know, God's plan to rebuild his family, to rebuild the, the, the people of God was not done. God always knew this would happen. That's the thing about an all-knowing God. Nothing ever slips by him. And he always knew this, he always had a plan, he always had a way he was going to, to rebuild it all, and God is at work, he didn't give up on us, he has been at work in trying to rebuild his people ever since. And, you know, and, and we, will, we will talk, uh, if, like I said, if we have time we'll talk more about that today. What I want to start with today is we're, we're going to see that there were more people in the garden than just Adam and Eve uh, and, and God. There's another being there, not human beings, but there's another being with God. God created other, you know, other things that were his imagers in one way or another. And, and we all think of, of, of angels and, and uh, you know, we know about spiritual beings, but today we're going to begin talking about spiritual beings uh, a, a little bit and, and, and see, um, you know, we're, we're going to see that, that really um, they were there before, it seems, before man uh, and even in Eden. Uh, and, and so it's an interesting discussion. I want you guys to turn to Psalm chapter 82. And this is something I read the, in the introductory class to this as one of the examples of these uh, kind of strange verses, strange passages that we don't know what to do with. And most of the time we just skip right on by it, ignore it, and, and don't really think about what it is talking about. So Psalms 82, and this is where we get the title for today's lesson. Today's lesson is, so who are these guys? Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about today, all right? I want to read Psalm 82 to you, and, and then we'll you know, talk about what this says. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. By the way, I'm reading out of the, the, the NLT, okay, the New Living Translation. In a minute here, I'm going to read from the New King James, and I want you to see the differences and how people have struggled through the years to know what to do with this. But the, the New Living Translation here is giving about as close to the, to the actual Hebrew as, as, as you're likely to get. Okay, so that's basically what it's, it's saying. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. Now the words literally used there is Elohim, 
presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the Bene Elohim, the sons of God. Elohim pronounces judgment on the sons of God. That's what it says in Hebrew, okay? And they do a pretty nice job of translating it, uh, you know, over heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. I say you are gods. And yes, you are reading that correctly. It is again the word Elohim. I say you are Elohim. All right? You are all children of the Most High. And again, it's that phrase again. It is, is the, the, the B'nai Elohim. Uh, you know, sons, literally, it, it's, it's B'nai Elion, I believe. It's, it's sons of, the, uh, you know, God the Most High. All right? Uh, but, you, but, but notice what he says here. Here's their punishment. But you will die like mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. And some of you may, that may be the first time you've ever actually noticed that passage in the Bible and you might be going, what in the world is going on? Who are these guys? Hence the title of today's lesson. Who are these guys? Who, let me, let me just read it real quickly to you from, uh, uh, from, from the uh, New King James. This is a Ryrie Study Bible. And, and you'll notice the, the, the difference in kind of how, you know, how, how translators have struggled to know what to do with this. They, they know kind of how it, it is in the original, but they struggle over exactly how to word that in English because it, it seems so far out, you know. It says, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. And then it has a note, literally, you know, it, God or, or Elohim. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, uh, free them from the hand of the wicked? They do, uh, do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. So uh, I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like, like one of the princes uh, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. All right, the first thing it does is it brings up questions. What's it mean that you are gods? Now, the answer, there, there are several possibilities, and what it does not, let's start with what it does not mean. It does not mean that they are gods in the same way that, that Yahweh, God, is God. You know, there is only one Yahweh, and the Bible is very clear of that. When we think of God, what we usually think of is we think of, of who Yahweh is. It's funny how that almost definition of God has come to us from Christianity, from, from the Judeo-Christian understanding of God. We think of God as being the eternal one, the, you know, the all-powerful one, the omniscient one, uh, and we could go through all the different lists of attributes. That's how we understand the concept of God. Uh, as the one true creator God of all things. That is not the only way that, that the ancient world talked about God. If you guys have ever, you, think back to like, you know, your, your, your high school when, or, or junior high when you talked about like uh, Greek and Roman mythology and how they had all those, remember all those crazy gods who all were kind of like humans and doing stupid human things and making the same dumb mistakes humans made? That's kind of how the ancient world kind of thought about gods. That's kind of how polytheism thinks about God. Judaism, you know, and, and Christianity following it is so unique because there's this idea of, of like the one God who's just like greater than anything, you know. Uh, and so that comes to us through, through this. But when that word uh, Elohim is used, it can refer to not just, it can refer to like Yahweh. And it does here in part of that verse. But it can also refer to kind of lesser beings, kind of like angels and things like that. They can be referred to as gods with a small g. 
What it essentially is meaning is they are divine beings, not divine in the sense of the way, again, Yahweh is, but divine in the sense that they are spirit beings. They don't have corporeal bodies. They don't have human flesh. They are spirit beings. They're created with great power, great authority, and they also, from that, kind of from that point on, they're, they're eternal, unless something happens and God decides to change that, which is basically what he's saying here he's going to do to these people. You know, you're going to die like human beings. You know? Another way a lot of people translate this is that it is talking to humans. In fact, Ryrie, that's the take he takes on it, that the word Elohim can actually also be used for human beings, and it has more to do with, like, their position. You know, I've made you this, like, higher position. So Ryrie and many other conservative scholars take this as being human judges. And what God is doing here is he's saying to human like rulers and judges on the earth, look at the horrible job you're doing, someday I'm going to judge you. Well, that's possible up to a certain verse. And then that description runs into major problems. Because he says there, but you will die like mortals. Well, if they're already mortals, duh. Of course. Well, how else would they die? What kind of punishment is that? It's no punishment. But if they're not mortals, if they're something other than mortals, and God says to them, look at how you're screwing the world up that I've made and kind of put into your hands. Look at what's going on. By golly, you're going to die just like mortal human beings. You guys get the idea? So there's something else going on here. Now, there are two major ways for the people who see this as being spiritual beings, there's two ways they generally understand it. One is that this is angels, and like a higher order of angels, like ruling angels. The other idea is that there is a level of spiritual beings that are above angels in kind of God's hierarchy. Those are the two ideas. In a lot of ways, they're very similar. They're almost exactly the same. People who believe it's angels think it's a higher level of angels, kind of like a ruling level of angels. Those who do not believe it's angels, they believe it's a higher level than angels, you know, kind of a step above the angels. Uh, and, and most of them just call it God's heavenly council or heavenly court or the sons of God. As it came forward in time and it came the time of the kind of the Babylonian captivity, uh, the, they, they borrowed a word from from you know, like the, the Persian language, Aramaic, uh, and, and, and that term is translated as the watchers. And that's what a lot of, and by the way, that was kind of the, probably the dominant position of, the, the, of Judaism during the Second Temple period, from the time of the Babylonian captivity up until uh, the time of Jesus. Uh, th that was, you know, that was a strong position amongst the Jews, that it was a group of beings that were higher up in the pecking order than the angels. They were, this, they, they were the watchers, the sons of God. Look, I don't care which one of them you believe. Because in a lot of ways, like as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't matter. You know, what, I, I mean, we'll know, you know when we get to heaven. You know, and, and, and if there's angels and something above angels, well, hey, again, we'll say, hey, who are you, who are you guys? You know, um, I think it kind of fits with some of what we see later on in the Bible. I mean, we just studied Revelation, and what do you see around the throne? These, like, supernatural kind of elders that are always there praising God and being near the, the throne of God. Um, I mean, I will say this. I, I think it's a, I've read the different arguments. I think it's a pretty convincing argument that there is something other than angels, a little, little higher than the angels. I think it's pretty convincing, actually. Uh, it, it's basically a linguistic argument uh, that, that people will argue that, that angels, the Hebrew word for, an, for angel is malach. And if you make it plural, angels, it's malachim. Uh, you, you add an I-M at the end of something to make it plural in Hebrew. Just like we add an S or an E-S or an I-E-S to make something plural. In Hebrew, you add an I-M. That's why Eloi or El is singular for God Elohim is God's. You guys get the, the idea? Okay? The, though it can be used as either plural or, or you know, singular, so we're not going to get down that rabbit hole. Um, you know, Hebrew is a very difficult language. 
But, but angels, malachim is, is always used, it means messenger, which is what the word angel means. It means messenger. And anytime you see angels clearly spoken about, it uses the word malachim or malach. Uh, you know, you don't generally see the, the, the phrase sons of God, B'nai Elohim, and Malachim used together in the same place unless it's a clear difference between the two. And so that's why he, a lot, you know, there, I won't say a lot, but there are, are many Hebrew scholars who say, hey, there's, there's, you know, the sons of God are different than the angels. There are other Hebrew scholars that say, no, no, they're not. There's not enough difference here. It's just like a higher order of angels. So again, I don't care. I, I just want, for our purposes, to point out to you that there's a supernatural spiritual world out there. And it's one the Bible speaks about over and over and over again. And if you don't know, it's there. If you don't know, like, the words that, that how the Bible refers to it, you, you completely miss it. But yet, these, these, these creatures play an enormous role in, in events that happen in the Bible. You know, I mean, there's a true spiritual warfare that goes on in the Bible from beginning to end. And we often, you know, don't grasp what is happening there. You know, so God has a heavenly council. God presides over heaven's court, it says at the beginning of 82. It's one of numerous places in the Old Testament that says God has a heavenly council. Think of it this way. Every president has a cabinet. You know, they carry out, they're each given certain responsibilities to carry out, they carry out his policy, but, but, you know, but he gives them the ability to do it. God didn't need anybody to do anything for him. God has no needs at all, but the Bible's very clear, he chose to have beings do it. He chose to have angels as his messengers. He didn't need a messenger. You know, he chose to have mankind have dominion over the earth. He didn't need mankind. God doesn't have needs. But it pleased God to make beings, essentially to make a family. And he made not just an earthly family, which is us, he made a heavenly family. That's why they're called the sons of God. You know, God has both an earthly and a heavenly family. Uh, you know, and, and, and that pleased God. He didn't need it, but he ple it pleased him to work that way. Now, I want to read just briefly a couple other passages to give you an idea. Um, you know, th this uh, you know this this phrase doesn't show up a lot, but it does show up from time to time uh, at other places in the Bible. Uh, let's start by looking at Job chapter one, verse six. One day, the members of heaven's court. There you have it again. Uh, and, and again, that's literally the Bene Elohim. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, Satan, and by the way, in Hebrew, Satan is a title. It is not a name. It is always the Satan. Okay? And that's why some, in some translations you will see that. And the accuser, you know, question mark, or, or uh, 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 yeah, comma, Satan came with them. Uh, and of course, God questioned Satan, says, where have you been? Satan said, I've been out, you know, looking out over all the earth, uh, seeing what's going on. Uh, you know, he's the accuser, and he's looking for people to accuse. That's, I mean, that's literally what's happening here. It's, it's not overly complicated. Um, look at chapter 2, verse 1. One day, the members of the heavenly court, and again, it's that same phrase, the, the, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, uh, came again to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, Satan, or, or, or the Satan, came with them. It seems to suggest he is one of that group, okay? Now, we don't know that for any certainty, but it seems to suggest that he uh, is, is among them. All right. If you look back at Job chapter 38 and verses 1 through 7, this is when God appears to Job in a whirlwind 
when Job starts to question God uh, you know, because of all the things he's suffering and, and God appears to him in a whirlwind and this is what he says to him. Um, he says, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? I don't know about you. God ever speaks to me out of a whirlwind and that's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? I'm done right there. You know, it, it, argument is over. Uh, so God starts out by basically saying, yeah, who, who, who are you, Job, you know, to be speaking in such ignorant ways about me? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. See, we always like to think that, that, that God somehow owes us answers. God doesn't owe us anything. And if you ever get yourself to the point where God confronts you and says, now you better brace up like a man because, by the way, that's all you are. That's kind of what's at the point here. I'm God and you are only a man, so brace yourself up like a man because now I'm going to ask you some questions and you have to answer mine. You don't have a choice. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? Who laid it, its cornerstone? He used the idea of things of building to basically say, hey, when I made the earth, where were you? You know so much. You know, how, how about you tell me how I did this? That's, that's what he's saying. Whoop. Mouth shut. Nothing Job can say. Then look at what he says. As the morning stars sang together and all the angels, and by the way, that word angel there is our exact same phrase, the B'nai Elohim. When all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So they were clearly with God at the time of the creation. When God created the world, they were with him and they were cheering him on, the Bible says. Go get them, God. Woohoo! Way to go. Yeah, that's the picture. So, so, you know, God had a heavenly family before he created an earthly family. You know? That, that, that's just kind of biblical reality. It, it's something that sometimes we miss, but it's it's there it is. All right, so we've talked about who these who these people are, or no, not who these beings are, what role do they play in the Bible? Well, I want to start by having you turn back to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. This is the events right before the flood, and this is one of the most controversial, most difficult passages to interpret in the entire Old Testament, really in the entire Bible. There have been whole books written about this, probably shelves of books written about this passage, um, and still nobody agrees. I read two of the most elite commentaries on Genesis that have ever been written yesterday. You know, uh, uh, John Walton's commentary and Ken Matthews' commentary, the legendary Genesis, you know, teachers, and, uh, and, and they don't agree. And, 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 you know, they almost just, you know, hey, this is the possibilities, and, you know, hey, here you go. <laughs> you know, it's a very difficult passage to try to, uh, to, try to in, in, interpret. But I want to read verses 1 through 8, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the different possible interpretations here. It says, then the, uh, then the people began to multiply on the earth, and again, I think the NLT nails it as far as, as, the, as, as the original language. They are one of the, the, not the only one, there's several other ones that do, but they, they, it is one of the translations that's bold enough to translate it the closest to what the Hebrew says, and, and, and not worry about how far out it seems, okay? So it says, then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and, and took any, any they wanted as their wives, then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with, with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. See, a lot of times when we read that, 
you know, we kind of think, well, it, it was 120 years until the time of the flood. That's not necessarily what it's saying. It, it, if you ever wondered why you have these incredible lifespans and all of a sudden it changes, this is why it changes. You know, God said, hey, I'm not going to put up with this nonsense any longer. You're seeing here the second rebellion against God. I'm not going to put up with this. 120 years is going to be about your max from this point on, okay? You know, and, and, and then he says, in those days uh, and for some time after giant Nephilites, which basically means giants, okay, and, and we, we're not going to talk about them today. We're going to get to them in a few weeks, okay? So we'll come back here, so, but so save all the giant questions uh, it's not the New York Giants or anything like that. I can tell you that much, but that's all you're going to get today. All right, so we'll come back to those guys uh, uh, later on. Uh, and, you know, giant Nephilites lived on the earth, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And, and the Lord said, I will wipe the human race I have created from the, the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them, but Noah found favor with the Lord. Okay? Now, there's a supernatural element here. In case you, you missed it, that word is, that phrase is there again, the B'nai Elohim, that is the sons of God. Now there are, there's basically three, there, there's several other ways, but there's basically three ways that people have read that through the years. People either read it by saying that that was angels or some other being a little higher than the angels, depending on their view, um, and basically spiritual beings saw human women, you know, had come down evidently, took on human form, saw human women and said, oh, they're pretty. You know, hey, let's have a good time. You know, I mean, that's basically what it's saying. You know, and, and, and that produced all these kind of cra <clears throat> crazy creatures that are kind of part spirit being and part human being, and they essentially corrupted humanity and led to how things got so wicked that God looked at it and he said, my gosh, every thought, everything they want to do, the, everything about them is wickedness all day long. We cannot have this. I'm going to put an end to this. But only Noah held on to you know, his, his belief in, in God and, and, and his worship of God, and God said, okay, I'll start over with him. So that's one view. Another view is that, that these were human kings or judges, people in power, and they saw other women, uh, and, and, and they practiced what was called in the ancient world the, the, the right of the first night. And that was like a local king or chieftain on a, on a marriage night before the, the, the husband could sleep with his wife, the king would sleep with her because he had right to her before anybody else. And that was, by the way, an ancient practice in some cultures. Probably not as widespread as what some scholars believed a number of years ago, uh, you know, uh, but, but that was one view. Uh, and, and then uh, another view is that there is a godly line of Seth, and then there was the rest of the human race. And the sons of God was the godly line of Seth, not to build Seth up too much back there, but that, you know, that, that they were the godly line of Seth, uh, and the other, the, the daughters of men were the rest of the human race. Now, you probably have all kinds of questions and thoughts flying around in your head right now. Well, here's, let's break that, this down a little bit. Up until like the second and third century A.D., None of those other options existed. No one has ever been able to find any other opinion in the ancient world other than they were angels or the sons of God. That's all there was for amongst the Jews and amongst the early Christians until like the two and three hundreds. No other opinion ever that anybody's ever been able to find. 
That was completely part of their worldview. That's how they understood things. In fact, they wrote about it in, in the time in between our testaments, that Second Temple Judaism time, the, the, the Jews wrote many spiritual books. They were never seen as canonical, never seen as being God's word. But they also weren't seen as trash either. They were beloved and they were seen as having a lot of truth in them. One of them was called First Enoch and First Enoch writes uh, like an amazing account of what happened to Enoch after he was translated from the earth and all these crazy things that Enoch experienced and, and, and you know, it, it, it's, it's all fascinating but it speaks of, of this very event, okay? Um, so that is how the Jews understood their world. That's how the early Christians understood it. In fact, you can see First Enoch, its influence in several New Testament passages, and we'll read them here uh, if, if we have time uh, at, toward the end. We'll, we'll go back and we'll kind of read a couple of those. Um, the other ideas kind of started coming about, uh, you know, in, in, in like I said, uh, somewhere around usually the third century, maybe early second century, came about in Judaism and in Christianity. The idea of the right of the first night, that these were kings and judges, grew up in Judaism at about that time. The idea that they, the, the godly line of Seth and the, and, and, and the line of human women, that, you know, of, of the other human women, that came up about that time amongst early Christians. Interestingly enough, right about the time they lost kind of their Jewish sense of their own Jewish culture and background that Christianity came out of. But up until that point, there was nothing. Now, many scholars today will take one of those positions, but, but re really, I mean, I've even read some of them say this, look, the other one's just too far out for me. How, how's an angel or, or a spiritual being, you know, have intercourse with a human, you know, I, I don't, I, that's just too far out for me, I'm going to go one of these other options, even though many of them will admit, linguistically, the strongest one by far, by a mile, is that these are, are, are angelic or spiritual beings. But they're just like, I, I, <laughs> I basically refuse to go there. That's what a lot of them say. Well, I, I mean, and I, you know, I, I respect a lot of these guys. I think they're incredible scholars. I, I've read a lot of their work, and I'm like, man, you guys are awesome. But on this one, I think you've completely dropped the ball. You can't just say to the Bible, that's too far out for me. I'm going to go some other way. I, I just have no respect for that. That's, <laughs> you know, I, the best argument is that this is the sons of God. This is a rebellion against God both amongst humans and in the heavens. And they created such a mess. See, that's part of the problem. The other two, nobody can explain how the right of the first night could possibly cause the earth to be in such horrible condition all over the earth. No one can even explain how you get a godly line of Seth because it's never there. The Bible never says that. You have to take that idea, import it, and put it into the Bible to read it that way. It's terrible Bible study. You know, and, and so most of the ideas that people have tried to come up with to get away from the supernatural idea are just awful on, on like their face, but that, you know, it's an attempt to tone down the Bible. You know, cut down some of the supernatural nature of it. It's just so far out. And I'll admit to you, it is far out. I mean, you know, that's, that's crazy. But it also seems to be what the Bible's saying. And so God's heavenly family and his earthly family joined together to rebel against God. You know, and, and many scholars that kind of take the other positions, they'll say, well, all the punishment here is against humans, not, he never speaks about, like, angels and their punishment. No, he doesn't, not here anyways, but boy, the New Testament does. You know, uh, and, and so, uh, and like I said, we'll get back to that. But those are the options that are going on here. I can tell you, I firmly believe that, that this was angels or, or the sons of God if such creatures exist. I think that's who it is. I mean, that's what the Bible says, and so, hey, you know, I'm going to take it for what it says here. I, you know, I, I absolutely believe the Bible uses imagery and, and, you know, metaphor and all kinds of things, but I don't think that's what's happening here. It seems to be a pretty straightforward story. You know, sons of God saw human women, said, oh, I like that. Hey, let's, you know, let's try to do our own thing here, and look at what it led to. 
The other two just don't make any sense. How, how could any of them lead to the problems that you see where the earth is so bad that, that God said, I'm, I'm going to have to destroy it? it, it nobody, I've never heard a good explanation for that, how, how that worked. So it seems to be that's what's going on here. The interesting thing, and like I said, we'll talk about this later, is the whole Nephilim thing. Well, you know, how do you explain their existence if, you know, if, if this isn't some kind of supernatural thing? And, 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 you know, some of your Bibles even say yeah, during this time and even after the flood that there were giants around. And, and by the way, doesn't David fight one? You know, um, how, that, how that worked, and again, we'll... We'll talk more about, I'm just kind of like throwing little teasers out there for you. It's like bait. Come back in a few weeks and we'll talk more about all that. Um, but, but it, you know, that's pretty far out too. I'll just give you a hint. <laughs> you know, that's some pretty far out stuff too. But it, it does say, you know, these were those kind of mighty, renowned warriors of old, like the offspring of these, you know, of these two um, and, and, you know, they kind of dominated things. Have you ever wondered, and this is, by the way, this is just Brianism. This is like an off, you know, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'm just going to throw this out there. You ever wonder why every ancient culture has all these, like, um, similarities in, in, like, their mythology that there are, you know, all kind of crazy creatures. There are vampires and werewolves and you know, all these kind of mighty ancient warriors and all these things. You, you realize that virtually every culture has that? All over the earth, everywhere you go, you find similarities. And it's one thing like cultural anthropologists are like, you know, how in the world did this happen? And they come up with all kind of psychological definitions. I think there's a really easy one, the Bible. If we all come from the same place and we shared certain experiences in that place, don't you think that would carry over into all of, of humanity as we spread out? I think so. I don't know what these creatures would have looked like, but they couldn't have been, you know, tame and fun and, hey, let's go pet a Nephilim. I, I mean, you know, it can't, you're not going to have anything like that. I mean, you know, it's going to be a pretty scary world. So, you know, I'll just throw that out there. Like I said, I have no, you know, I can't back that up with anything. It just, it's something that makes me wonder. Is that where our, a lot of our shared things come from? It's maybe a human experience that was not pleasant by any standard, and it became a thing that's frightened mankind ever since it happened. Seems to make some sense to me. So we see the sons of God show up in Genesis. Now, I want you guys to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32 to a very fascinating episode, and again, one that it, this is the song of Moses, and it's enormously long. He sang a long song. It wasn't just one verse. You know, um, this chapter alone is, is uh, 47 verses, and it's, some of them are doozies. You know, it, it, in my Bible, it takes up, what, uh, almost four pages just in this song. And don't be scared, we're not going to read the whole song. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, you know, force you into that, that, that experience. Um, but Moses is about to die. You know, the, the children of Israel would not go into the promised land, and, and, and Glenn's been talking about that in Hebrews. The children of Israel wouldn't go into the promised land and God said, okay, you're going to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years until all that adult generation dies off, and, and the younger generation comes up, and then I'll take you into the promised land. And, and Moses is not going to go into the promised land. He believed God. The, the only two that are going in that were like a part of the originals was, was you know, Joshua and Caleb. Moses believed God too, but Moses, because of another sin, God said, nope, you're not going to go into the, to, to the land of Israel. Um, so Moses, you know, he's been told by God, okay, Moses, this is it. This is your last things to say to the children of Israel. What do you, you know, and so Moses, this is Moses' last words to them. And he sings this song, um, and then after the song, he has a few, you know, a few more words. He, bless, he has a blessing uh, that he, he gives uh, to all the different tribes, and then that's pretty much it for Moses. And, and God takes him and 
And, and the Bible says that God buries him himself, which I just have always found one of the coolest things in the Bible. That, you know, man, what would it be like to, to be that close to God that he buries you himself? Holy cow. Um, but that's off the subject. Um, I want to read the first 18 verses. I want to start with verse 30 of chapter 31. It says, so Moses recited this entire song publicly to the assembly of Israel. So he got them all together, and, and he basically recited or sang this long song, song or poem to them, okay? And he's tough on them. I want to read the first 18 verses. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak. Hear, O earth, the words I say. Let my teaching fall on you like rain. Let my speech settle like dew. Let my words fall like rain on tender grass, like gentle showers on young plants. He's saying to the people, please listen to me. See this as like a gentle rain. You might not like everything I have to say, but it's important you listen to what I have to say. That's basically what he's saying. Pay attention. Understand, I, I love you, and this is for your good. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. How glorious is our God. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright is he. But they have acted corruptly toward him. When they act so perversely, are they really his children? They are a deceitful and twisted generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Isn't he your father who created you? Has he not made you and established you? Might, might say, whoa, hey, hey now, Moses. You know, take this like a gentle rain. You dirty son of a guns. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, man, he's just hammering them. Yeah, you know, but it's true, isn't it? Isn't, it that, isn't that the experience of what we saw in the Exodus all along? Just the people continually, you know, disobeying and walking away from God. And by the way, before we feel too uppity, how are we really much different? Don't we do the same thing, at least in our minds, all the time? You know, so this would probably do us good to listen to this, even though a lot of this does not necessarily apply to us. He says, remember, and, and notice what he says here. He takes them back to the to, the, to their beginnings. He says, remember the days of long ago. Think about the generations past. Ask your father and he will inform you. Inquire of your elders and they will tell you. Now remember, this is a pretty young generation, so there's not a whole lot of elders left. But he's saying, think back to those ancient stories that you were told about, about your past, where you came from. When the most, and here's the, 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 the startling kind of passage. When the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race. Now, when, when was that? When did that happen? What do you think? Babel. Yep, Babel. God split up the nations, you know, split up the languages at Babel. He takes them back to, to the Tower of Babel. When, when the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of his heavenly court. Now, through the years, there have been three ways that that has been translated. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it is read the number of the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. There it is again. In the Greek version, the Septuagint, it's read the number of the angels of God. There it is again, okay? Uh, the only one that's different is the Masoretic text, which read the numbers of the sons of Israel. They tried to kind of clean it up and said it's according to us, the, you know, Israel. But it's a terrible translation. All of the oldest, most original, basically, understandings of this was it was the sons of God. So God says, I divvied up the nations amongst the sons of God. Remember when we read Romans 1 and God said, hey, if this is what you want, okay, you can have it. I'm going to give you over to your own evil, to your own sins. And basically, it seems like God said to his heavenly court, okay, they're yours. They're yours. Notice what's said next. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. Israel didn't even begin yet at this point. They, they didn't exist yet. 
that God also already said, I'm going to create a people for myself, and they'll be mine. They will be my special possession. They will be my special people. I want you to think back to what God said to Abraham. I'm going to create a people from you. But what was his ultimate goal? And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. See, God always had a plan. I'm going to win them all back. But, I, but, but they keep rebelling against me. So I'm going to let you experience what it's like if you want to live outside of me. So the rest of you, here you go. Have it your way. Have it your way. I'll, I'll give you up to my heavenly court and I'll let, you, I'll let them take charge of you. You want some context for his indictment of the heavenly court in Psalm 82 when he's talking about how bad a job they're doing? This is it. Deuteronomy 32 is the background. God's saying you're screwing everything up. Look at how bad a job you're doing of running all this. You're gonna die like mere mortals because of how you're leading them all astray. You ever wonder where false worship and everything came from and all the idea of all these other gods? This is it. Babel, and when God says, okay, you can have it your way. That's what Paul says in, in, in Romans 1. He doesn't specifically name Babel, but Babel seems to be the only likely place that, uh, for what Paul is talking about there. Paul does say that there came a time where God said, okay, here you go. Have what you want. Actually, I'm... I'm I, I, if, if you read on, and, and we don't have time, I'm gonna, we're going to stop there for that passage. If you read on, he basically stresses uh, you know, God's role of taking Israel, finding them in like the middle of a desert, taking them out, nursing them, caring for them, shielding them, protecting them, and all in order to make them grow. And remember, this is what Moses is singing to Israel as they're about ready to go into the Canaan land. You've rebelled against God so much, you've forgotten who you were in the beginning. Think back to what you are and who you are and why you were created. You're special to God. Stop rebelling against him. That's Moses' message. You know, th this is who Israel is. They're, they're you know, God's special people. Real quickly, and this will go fast, so you don't even have to, you can write these down, look at them later. I'm just going to turn quick and I'm going to read. It makes some sense of some other passages that didn't up until this point uh, you know, make a whole lot of sense. Daniel chapter 10, uh, verses 4 through 14. Daniel uh, you know, has an angel or a, or a spiritual being come to him with a message. And, and, and you know, Daniel's typically scared. And, and he says, on, on April 23rd, as I was standing on the banks of the great Tigris River, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a, pure, a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. By the way, that terminology is going to come back into play here next week. The idea of a body looking like a precious gem. In other words, he was shiny. He was shiny. He sparkled. Okay? His body looked like a precious gem. Uh, his face flashed like lightning. His eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze. And his voice roared like the vast multitude of people. Only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men who, who uh, with me saw nothing but were suddenly uh, terrified and ran away to hide. So they didn't see anything, but they knew something was going on. It scared them so bad, the presence of this being, that they just all ran and hid. You know, and, and Daniel says, so I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale. I felt very, uh, very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted. And lay there with my face to the ground. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and knees. And the man said to me, Daniel, you are very precious to God. So listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. When, when he said this to me, I stood up and uh, still trembling. Then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourselves before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. Notice these next two verses. But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. So who is this guy? Well, I'll throw this out there. I think he's one of the sons of God. 
you know, God divvied them up amongst the, the nations to them. Well, he's the prince of Persia. And he doesn't like what God has to say here. And he is fighting this angel. Now, and he goes on to say, um, he blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, and again, that, that phrase there means chief princes. Pretty likely that Michael's a part of this higher group. One of the chief princes, Michael, uh, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Uh, now I'm here to explain things to you, basically, is what he says. See, that's one of those verses that's puzzled people for years, but it's really not so puzzling when you think in the light of Deuteronomy 32, is it? You know, there's a spiritual warfare, folks, going on around us all the time that we do not see. The, 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 the experience of, of, of the universe and, and everything that there is is a spiritual experience. It's a spiritual battle. Real quickly, I just want to point out a couple things. Uh, you know, we talked about Romans 1, and maybe we'll look at that next week. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, when, when we're told to put on the armor of God. You know how it begins that? It says, your fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, basically, of the heavenly realm. God points, it points out through Paul to Christians, your fight isn't human beings. You think it is, but it's not. It's heavenly beings. It, it, it's the, the, the workers of wickedness. It, it, it's the forces of darkness. They are real. And they are your battle. Not one another. So we get that all mixed up. Well, you know, what we want is for the lost to be saved, not to see them as the enemy. That is not a biblical position no matter how much you dislike what they do. They are lost, and, and, and they're under the influence, and in, in a couple other passages in the Bible, it calls it the doctrine of demons. The false teaching of this world just didn't come to humans all by themselves. It came from, you know, from, from higher sources. Now, that doesn't mean we're off the hook. The Bible never lets us off the hook. We do enough bad on our own, we don't need anybody else to make it up for us. But the point is, we got help. We don't need help, but we got it. And the spiritual forces of this world are helping man be even worse than what we tend to be all on our own. And that's the, always the picture in the Bible from beginning to end. It's a spiritual battle, and, and, and God's heavenly sons and his earthly children have disobeyed him. And at times, they've even worked together, though we don't often know or acknowledge that there is a spiritual realm kind of working on us but that's what the bible says real quickly one last verse i, I want to read um second peter and, and we could read jude these are almost exactly the same this is the influence of actually first enoch on on the new testament look at second peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 11 He's talking here about false teachers and the danger of false teachers, um, and, and he, he, he says this, for God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment, and God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. What do you think he's talking about here? Doesn't sound, it sound like the story of Noah. God didn't spare the angels, and he didn't spare the humans. Locked the angels away for that sin, said, you guys are done for, uh, you know, for the rest of the time until I, you know, loose you at the end times. You're so bad, nobody can play with you anymore. You're locked away. God didn't spare the humans, destroyed the ancient world. Actually, well, we could go on, but we're out of time. Uh, you guys get the idea. Read that on your own. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 11, and, and read Jude's verses 6 through 19. They, they are basically referring to the same thing. Mankind's rebellion against God and how God didn't even spare the angels, the sons of God, who sinned in, in such horrible ways, okay, and led humankind aside. Pretty far out, isn't it? Told you.
Um, Next week, we're going to talk about angels and demons and Satan. We're going to take, today we focus more on the sons of God and if there is a difference. Next week, we're going to look at who angels are, what demons are, and where they come from. And by the way, there's not just one idea of where demons come from. Everybody thinks, well, you know, they all, they all fell with Satan. Not, every, not every Old Testament scholar, not every ancient Jew believed that, by the way. That may be shocker to you, but we'll talk about that next week because there's, there's a pretty far out idea, but it's got some decent biblical backing to it uh, about who exactly the demons are. Uh, and then we'll also talk about Satan and what exactly he is and... and Um, you know, what all's going on there. So that'll be next week. Um, Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the, the, just it's glorious, Lord. Um, Your word is just awesome. It is challenging. It's, um, you know, it it is so uh, difficult for us at times. And so, Father, these are some that's what we're looking at. We're looking at these difficult things, and I just pray for, for wisdom. I pray for guidance. I, I pray for clarity of thought and of voice um, as we do this, and I pray for that not just for myself as a teacher, but I pray for this for everyone who is listening. Uh, help us to understand you better, understand your word better, understand ourselves better, uh, and, and to get an idea of what is going on uh, in, in, in your world. And so we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.